to Feminist Without Mystique, a podcast where we process politics, sex, and the unrelenting fire hose of bullshit in the news through an unapologetically feminist lens. Each week, we begin by venting about the news, go deep on one important issue, call out terrible things happening below the top headlines in a segment called We See You, and then we'll end with something hopeful. And just a little reminder, mind, if you're enjoying us to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, uh, follow us on the social means. You can find us at FWM Podcast on um, the non-Instagram social medias. Instagram, we are Feminists Without Mystique. And uh, feel free to slide into our DMs anytime. Um, ideally not with dick pics. That's only happened once, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was their own penis. I think it was uh, sourced. But I digress. Um, we'd love to... <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. We would. Yeah. <sighs> here we are. <laughs> here here we are, you know? Uh, A depressing um, topic. I mean, not that they're often <laughs> uplifting, I guess. Yeah. Um, but the Gabby Petito um, murder, I guess we can say now, has been taking the nation by storm. Um, mm -hmm. Couldn't really avoid news about it for the past few days, past week. Um, yeah. And there are many reasons why I think that this case has gained so much traction and publicity, which we'll get into. Um, but first, we'll just kind of go over a brief, a brief timeline, um, synopsis of kind of what's happened to catch people up to speed. Um, so Gabby Petito is a 22-year-old woman who went on a cross-country road trip with her fiancé, Brian. Uh, they left in July. Um, and then on August 12th, uh, there was, was later found out there was a 911 call about them. Um, and on the 911 call, the person is saying, we drove by them and the gentleman was slapping the girl that we stopped. He proceeded to hit her, hopped in the car, and they drove off. Um, so that was a 911 call that was believed to be about them. Um, and then they ended up getting pulled over in the van that same day, not due to the 911 call, um, but because I believe they hit a curb. And that was, I didn't watch the all the body cam. But it just felt, I don't know. I don't know. It, it just felt like I was, would be like infringing upon something, mm -hmm. you know, like weird voyeuristic way, not to shame anyone who did. I just, I felt yeah. weird about it. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but from people's summations of the video, it sounds like they were, um, she was having a mental health crisis and he was acting pretty cool, calm and collected, but often in, situations where there is domestic violence the um, person who is being victimized often is the one who seems quote-unquote unruly mm -hmm. you know the person having a visible emotional response and then the perpetrator tends to be you know kind of calm kind of cool kind of collected and there was all this back and forth and they ended up just kind of um having them stay the night in different places he stayed at a hotel and she stayed in the in the van um she said that she was afraid he was going to leave her in the middle of the middle of nowhere basically and he had some scratches on his face which um he said was from her when she was trying to get the phone from him and 
and all this, but it was like an hour long video, I think, um, mm. interaction that they had. Um, so, and apparently a park ranger, Melissa Hulls, who spoke with her, said that she was talking about how the relationship appeared toxic and she was trying to talk to Gabby about maybe ending the relationship or moving on in life and all that stuff. So August 12th, um, they had, by several accounts, um, they were having some some disputes. And then on August 19th, there was a video on YouTube that they published, an eight-minute video, van life, and showed them happy, kissing, laughing, climbing rocks, um, all that. And then around August 23rd, August 24th, um, was the last time that Gabby's um, parents or her mother spoke with her on FaceTime. And she said she was headed to Utah um, or leaving Utah and headed to Wyoming. And that she texted her mom a few times after that. Her last Instagram post was on August 25th. On August 27th, there was a text sent that her parents didn't think was her talking about um, wanting them to give Stan a call which is her grandparent, but she never called him Stan. So they thought that was strange and maybe mm-hmm. was not her. Maybe was, I don't know, something, something um, abnormal to say the very least. And then August 30th, this is a text where Gabby's mother did not think it was her. The text said no service in Yosemite. And as we will later find out, um, it was, she was not ever in Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem like that was a text sent from her. September 1st, Brian returns home to Florida with the van alone. Technically Gabby's van uh, that they were living out of. And Gabby's family reports her missing on September 11th. And Brian um, basically came back, to got back to Florida, got a lawyer. Mm -hmm. um, You know, when they showed, the cops showed up to his parents house or his house the his parents opened the door and handed them his lawyer's information basically and the um the investigators were publicly talking about how he brian was not cooperating and how they really wanted him to cooperate and speak to them but he said he wasn't because of the or his lawyer said that he advised him not to speak to anybody so then on september it turns out that September 14th was the last time his family says that he, they even saw him and they report him missing. <laughs> um, and now that now he's a missing person. Um, mm-hmm. People think he likely, I mean, there's lots of speculation, but fled to some degree. Um, <clears throat> and then Sunday, the body, a body was discovered in a remote area of the Bridger Teton, Teton, I'm not sure, National Forest in Western Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and eyewitness tips helped help them get there. There were these eyewitnesses um, who took a video of where the van was parked, and they ended up finding um, Gabby's body not far from there. Um, and the people who found, who sent that that tip in, actually were on a trip. It's like the anniversary of their son's death, and they felt they said they felt like compelled to, I don't know, to take a video of it. Um, mm. They almost went over and talked to them, but they decided not to. And then today, um, which is Tuesday, September 21st, they uh, declared that it was Gabby's um, body and that the death was preliminarily ruled a homicide. Um, so that's kind of 
the long and short of the just kind of the timeline from the beginning of the trip till now with um with gabby petito and her fiance brian and it's gotten a lot of attention um i think partially because the trip was their trip had been documented on social media there are it's an interest i hate to use interesting because it sounds so like but there are there are facets to the case like you know him just showing back up in florida and not reporting her missing and refusing to cooperate just a lot of things that feel like they're taken from one of those crime shows um but more than that and what we're going to focus on is it likely has um something to do with the fact that she is a young conventionally attractive um white woman that's a great summary i feel like it encompasses a lot of um the ups and downs of of the case that people have been like following that's the other thing is that it's just it's gained so much traction online in terms of interest and um i actually first kind of was seeing it bubbling up in the true crime community a little bit because the true crime podcast twitter is like there was a lot of that in the like maybe last week the week before um anyway uh it's just caught on and snowballed in terms of attention i think there have been like hundreds of hundreds of millions of um hits on tiktok for her name for anyone talking about her case um but what we (laughs) this conversation is is not like it's just going to be holding two truths at the same time very firmly which is that what happened to her is a tragedy um, and she should be like, I'm glad that there's a ton of attention. I'm glad that there is an investigation that police are on it. And, um, hopefully her family will get some semblance of justice and, um, or closure. And this guy, if he is the murderer, which it really, really seems like he is all signs point to yes. Um, you know, hopefully he, he is put in jail and they catch him and he faces justice for what he's done. Um, and that is all true and real. And I will be watching with interest and I hope that that pans out for them at the same time. Um, and, uh, Molly Jong fast wrote a great um, piece in the daily beast about this today. And it's been brought up on Twitter a lot and lots of other, you know, but we're going to have a conversation that, uh, about, the centering of white white women and conventionally attractive white women um, in these missing persons cases and why it almost always is a a attractive white woman that that the the this country sort of rallies around and catches a collective imagination and interest and then and then resources um uh it looks like from at least and from molly's article in the daily beast um in the same area that Gabby Petito disappeared, 710 indigenous people, mostly girls, disappeared between the years of 2011 and 2020. Uh, that 710. I mean, a staggering, when you get into the missing and murdered indigenous women um, research, um, it's incredibly dark. And um, all of the 
women of color that get ignored um, in, in, in this sphere. Uh, it's just, uh, there is no way that it is not true that we, <laughs> that there is a complete centering of whiteness. Um, and it actually kind of circles back around to this constant, the like negative backlash, like on things like critical race theory, because it just feels like, I think, or I've noticed that people who are bringing up like, okay, well, why is Gabby Petito getting all this attention? And then someone's like, well, why can't, you know, well, she should, why can't people, you know, this is injustice. It's obviously, you know, so super sketchy and people kind of jumping, jumping on any internet commentary that essentially is just pointing out why is just this type of person? Why is, why is Gabby Petito getting this when, you know, if you're going to average out 710 indigenous women in this area where she was murdered, um, if you're going to average, and I might not do it well because I'm not great at math, but that would mean 100 women or girls per year in this area, in this region of the United States. We're not even talking about the whole country. Um, why don't those women get any real media resources um, and attention? And so the conversation itself just just on its face needs to happen and it in no way is diminishing the uh tragedy that is happening to Gabby Petito we can have a conversation where we say let's uh like look at this case as a symptom of um an issue with the conversation and the allocation of resources in this country when it comes to domestic violence and missing and um, missing missing women in this country. Yeah, it seems like the answer to the question when do we care about violence against women is when they are um, after they've died, um, yeah. when they are white, cisgender, conventionally attractive young um, young women. That's when that's when society as at large seems to really take notice. Um, Joy Reid was talking today about. Uh, missing white woman syndrome, um, which was a term coined by Gwen Eiffel to describe the media, the public fascination with missing white women like Lacey Peterson, Natalie Holloway, um, while ignoring cases involving people of color. Um, Joy Reid was talking about a geologist, Daniel Robinson, a 24-year-old black man who went missing earlier this year under really mysterious circumstances, and um, no one, you know, no one has heard has heard about that um right the and missing persons uh cases involving people of color in the united states are less likely to be solved than missing person cases involving people who are white um the number of missing people of color is disproportionately higher and their stories are underrepresented in national conversations and mainstream media so you have more people of color missing but it's talked about less Mm -hmm. um Cases involving African Americans remain open and unresolved four times longer than cases involving white and Hispanic people. And the reason that that those groups were merged is that's how the FBI apparently reports that data. Right. Um, so it's likely even higher when you're looking at white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so and there's also the point that um, so Elizabeth Smart, she was kidnapped in Utah in 2002. 
her father hired a publicist. She was eventually found after a stranger recognized her. And that's hiring a publicist isn't a resource that everybody has. Um, Definitely. And uh, in terms of indigenous women and girls, it's hard to even get, like the data isn't even necessarily um, very transparent. Um, as of 2016, the National Crime Information Center has reported 5,712 cases, 5,712 cases since uh, as of 2016, uh, of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. But the U.S. Department of Justice missing persons database has only reported 116 of those. Um, so there are huge unaccounted for numbers of indigenous women and girls, a lot of Apparently, the majority of the murders are committed by non-Native people on Native-owned land. Mm-hmm. Um, and Indigenous women and girls are murdered at 10 times a higher rate than all other ethnicities. Um, so there is a striking, striking disparity between who we're... And again, we should we should be talking about, we should be caring about women who are victims of of crimes you know like Mm -hmm. like you said i don't think we shouldn't care about gabby petito um but we have to be conscious about why why are the stories that get the attention that they're getting getting the attention they're getting and why are other stories not you know right um and (laughs) Like you say, the misclassification and the lack of a sort of of the infrastructure within law enforcement to be able to process these crimes when they're happening to indigenous people, indigenous girls, is um, a failure that it feels like if it feels like there's a few things that you could quite easily maybe fix. So. For instance, um, I was reading something on uh, an NBC article about um, Abigail Echo Hawk, who uh, had a she was part of a team of researchers actually in Seattle at the Seattle Seattle Indian Health Board. Um, they released a study in 2018 um, on missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, talking about the magnitude, but um, they only documented about. 500 cases in the Western United States stretching back to the 1940s, but they were highlighting the shortcomings of the um, crime data. Uh, and they talked about, first of all, there's um, like you, you, you talked about, there's uh, misclassifying Native American women as white or Hispanic um, and not documenting tribal affi- affiliation. Um, police forms, don't usually have a field for that information. And then that means that tribal governments don't even understand the scope of the problem among their own citizens. Um, But uh, based on their research, four out of five, like you said, Indian and um, Alaskan Native women experience violence uh, and or violence in their lifetime. Um, Homicide is the uh, it's 10 times the national average murder rate. Women face murder rates that are 10 times the national average. And um, homicide is the third leading cause of death among 10 to 24-year-olds. Um, 
and fifth leading cause of death for American Indians and Alaskan Native women between 25 and 34. Um, and that's according to the CDC. Um, another pretty shocking statistic was uh, just also that um, domestic violence broadly um, kills uh, three women a day on average in the United States, like alone, uh, which was data that came out of the Violence Policy Center, which uses Bureau of Justice statistics um, about female homicide victims. That's according to um, an article in NBC News. Um, so, but it's just, it really, again, it's the scale of the problem that, that is, that kind of boggles the mind. And I know like it might seem sort of beating a dead horse to a kind of rant, occasionally randomly come back to like critical race theory, just because it's constantly in the news and it's constantly used as this like, um, kind of lightning rod for controversy but honestly i think about critical race theory when we talk about even these types of historically large um injustices to minority women because you can't even wrap your brain around the problem because you don't have enough meaningful like a meaningful pool of data but what you do have suggests that there is a there is an incredible amount of violence um that's just largely ignored and that we're not even really putting the resources towards getting better data that's really comprehensive or god forbid fixing the fucking problem and prioritizing um the welfare of women uh, and girls in this country, especially ones without um, the resources uh, to advocate for themselves. Um, the, and that's just like sort of a broad, a broadly frustrating issue. I mean, even Washington state, we had our attorney general, Bob Ferguson, who we both love, <laughs> um, we created a task force um, with representatives from tribal nations and community outreach organizations to try to look at the criminal justice system and best practices um, for data collection and crime reporting. And they were given $500,000 to spend over the last couple of years. And Bob Ferguson said, quote, the incomplete nature of the data, if I'm, um, if I'm putting it charitably, has been a challenge for us. So... I, like that's in Washington state where I feel like there is some sort of meaningful actual effort to try to address and co address this violence, collect data, better understand and better serve indigenous communities. Um, I, I don't know what the right, like where to go for better policies. We can't seem to get anything right in this moment, not trying to be a cynical beach, but it's just like, you know, if we can't get anything done, I am very feeling sort of pessimistic that prioritizing um, indigenous women and women of color is like ever going to rise to um, a like, 
congressional priority broadly like imagine trying to get this in front of joe manchin and have it him take it seriously or kirsten cinema um but i don't but i think at the very minimum what we can do is what we what we what we have to do is talk about this in a real way and not in a way that is diminishing of any any woman who faces violence and who faces and who you know who has dealt with either violence or or who has been murdered and her family's trying to find some closure some sense of justice for them for themselves um talking is only a first step but i think it is it is an important one yeah and you think about the there are so many issues in this country, in this world, in this country where, you know, at a certain point in history, you felt like you were maybe on a track toward progress and then at some point realized, no, it's swinging forward, swinging back. And the the Violence Against Women Act um, what expired in 2019 and the House approved reauthorization of it, but... Um, I believe the Senate still has not. <laughs> yeah, so. why is it languishing? Why is it languishing? Yeah. Um, so when you look at <laughs> that landscape as well, something, the Violence Against Women Act, which shouldn't be controversial, um, no. you know, originally passed in the 90s, I believe it was 1994. Um, and we have that lapsing and then the Senate being like, hmm. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah. It's just, um, and you look at the attacks on reproductive rights in Texas, and it just feels like women, particularly women of color, are not a priority in this country, other than maybe a voting block to be pandered to. Um, Right. And I also do want to mention that trans women and girls are go missing are victims of violence at significantly higher rates than um, cisgender women and girls so there there are many different ways in which we we like to discriminate against women and girls um and i don't know where or how it ends and it's you know you have these people who care about these stories that they find salacious or interesting and they go on reddit and read through the conspiracies and maybe like genuinely do care about the the victims in these stories but in day-to-day life um how seriously do we really take it you know when it's not a story Right. It's a total, it's like the farce of all lives matter. You know, once again, like who, whose lives matter really? Like you can't with a straight face. I mean, I, the people that have obviously people that say all lives matter are full of like <laughs> a duffel bag of shit to quote Bo Burnham. Um, but <laughs> like really, I mean, the issues that we talk about on this podcast how many times have we brought something up and been like, just wondering where the all lives matter crowd is, you know, mm-hmm. just wondering why they're like, are they napping? Um, 
it's the all lives matter rhetoric. It's the family, you know, family first, family so important, protect protect women and girls, like all this rhetoric that sometimes that that conservatives use to make it seem like they are for family and safety and the preservation of life when obviously they aren't and they aren't even interested in learning. And talking about how certain groups are disproportionately affected by violence, by global warming, by abortion policy. It's not, it shouldn't, should never be viewed as a threat, you know? And I think that's, that's part of one of the global failings of, of, of where we are in 2021 is, is people being able to basically say that any discussion that includes racial injustice as a part of the tapestry of bullshit and inequities going on uh, is somehow threatening to white people and is uh, embarking on some sort of like vicious, unfair culture war kind of Fox News. But it, it feels like it's getting more prevalent in like other intellectual spheres and substacks and Twitter atmospheres where people, you know, Barry Weiss, like New York Times op-ed columnists will sort of subtly undermine this important, these important conversations where we, where we must talk about historic inequities, structural inequities that are built like you know, that have, that are kind of the, still the underpinning of like the way society functions. And it's galling. It's galling. It's like, I mean, I'm, I'm staring at this notepad that I also had like a little note from earlier too, from an NPR article that says, um, since 2000, indigenous people have made up 21% of homicides in Wyoming, even though they are only 3% of the population. 21% of homicides, 3% of the population. Um, and 30% of those of those homicides uh, only got media coverage of any sort. And then if it's a homicide of a white person, it jumps up to 51%. I guess I feel frustrated and burnt out, like even, even as we talk about it, because I wish that I could... When we talk about other issues, sometimes at least there's some sort of strategy on how to help push policy forward. And this feels intractable. And it feels like you could scream at the top of your lungs about all of the women who are being ignored um, and kind of who are voiceless and it's not even gonna be a drop of water in the ocean of fuckery right now. Yeah, it's, um, it, it can be heartbreaking. I do think that this is the, I saw on the various articles, um, links and all that that have been posted about the Gabby Petito case in the, in the past week or two. A ton of people calling out the lack of representation um, mm -hmm. in these kinds of stories and calling out specifically the disparities and all that and that's I think been happening more and more um, in recent years but I do definitely think that unfortunately it doesn't it doesn't seem that uh, 
things are going to get done out of the goodness of people's hearts, but I think that public pressure has sometimes shown to be um, useful in terms mm-hmm. of realizing change in at least small ways. Um, so I do think that the fact that people are speaking out about it more, um, there are some cities um, across this country who have in the last few days started putting together um, coalitions to address the issues of, you know, all the missing girls and women in their, in their area, um, regardless of whether they're white or not. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that that momentum continues and, you know, keeping an eye on the missing persons in your, um, wherever you live and sharing and, um, because that information can often be found if you're hunting for it, but it's not, it's not put out there unless, you know, historically, unless the person who's missing fits very specific criteria. Um, and you know, the fact that, (laughs) I mean, police policing we need some 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 help there too because it uh it seems that uh people will non-native people will go and commit these crimes against these women because they're not afraid of being punished um because there is not effective there's not effective policing in a lot of instances in my opinion um and I think that this is one of those those galling issues. And I think that having things like critical race theory in schools is important and educating these next generations to be better. And while working on it during this generation too, it's not a lost fucking cause. Um, yeah. <laughs> even though it feels like it sometimes. Yeah. But it's certainly certainly heartbreaking um and unjust and it's hard to know (laughs) how to best help in these situations when it feels like there's just bullshit in every corner yeah i agree i think you're totally right though i mean the more the more women that come together the more coalitions and that are formed and pushing at the state and local level for data to be properly collected for forms to be added for uh, new boxes to be added to police forms that include tribal affiliation and uh, to put real resources, real dollars behind, um, behind these initiatives. And then just like you say, like, like we're doing, I mean, we're, we're speaking, we're speaking it into existence. It is true. And, um, feminine like the feminism that I think both of us really want to practice is is a feminism that is decentering whiteness and we're two white women and um that's I think sometimes sometimes talking about it I feel just profoundly sad that there isn't I'll, like that there isn't just like more that can be done right the fuck now. I mean, and we, we have these, we talk about this when other, other tragedies happen from like gun control to um, 
the uh, anti-choice movement in this, you know, in this moment. But um, yeah, I, I, that's, you totally put your finger on it with like critical race theory. I've had a very rambly episode, <laughs> um, but a little all over the place today. Um, but I, why critical race theory comes up is because it's about education and educating um, the next generation to, to think critically about the role that race has played in our past, our present, and will play in our future. And that is, we, that, that cannot, that is not threatening to white, to white people, (laughs) you know, it's Mm -hmm. supposed to be upending the current power structure. And that's why it's so important. And so it, it does, it does relate to this conversation on missing and murdered indigenous women and women of color. Um, and it's just, yeah, it, it, it is all related and it all needs to be, uh, continued to be advocated for. Definitely. And there are nonprofits like the coalition that stop violence against native women, um, that you can look into and donate or look into their policy advocacy, um, how to get involved and things like that. So it's definitely worth, um, worth looking into how you can help in whatever way that you can, whether that's a donation, whether that's writing to an elected official, um, you know, talking about it, educating the people in your lives who might not even, (laughs) the public system of America failed them and they don't even know that there are these disparities. Um, Mm -hmm. So there are, those are some things that you can do, but I mean, our, society is built on and supported by racism and it bleeds into every facet of the American tapestry and um this is no no exception no exception and now for we see you all righty so this one goes out to the hang time sports grill and bar in Rowlett Texas um, there was a couple, Natalie Wester and Jose Lopez, who went out to eat. Um, they left their four-month-old son at home, um, and their four-month-old son has cystic fibrosis and is immunocompromised. So Natalie and her husband, Jose, chose to wear face masks at the restaurant because they wanted to minimize the risk of bringing COVID home to their son who would get very 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 ill likely from covid um and when they're waiting to order um or they're waiting for the appetizer to arrive the server came to their table and said that they had to take off their masks or they'd get kicked out um apparently the restaurant bans customers from wearing masks as part of its dress code I mean, as a way to protest, um, but they made it part of their their dress code. And the owner, Tom Blackmer, said it's his right as someone who purchased and has invested in a private uh, business. The ban isn't posted anywhere um, in writing. It's just something where the hostess or the server or the host is told to tell people um, if they're wearing masks, they have to leave. So... Uh, she said that her manager sent her over and that it's political and she needs them to take their masks off. 
Mm. Um, they told the server about their son, and the server said that they could then pay their bill and leave if they don't want to follow the policy. So, <laughs> you have people getting kicked out of a restaurant for choosing to wear face masks as they're in between, um, you know, when they're not eating or drinking. I just, to keep their child safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, wh- what in the fuck? What it's in the fuck? so, so evil and foolish and... I mean, you're seeing more and more anti-vaxxers dying, honestly, from COVID and the stories coming out. And then you see these stories (laughs) where people are punishing other people for wearing masks. Um, It's so fucked up. And I mean, that's that's all I can say about it. Um, So we see you to the hang time sports grill and bar and Rowlett, Texas, um, who just didn't really want to keep a four-month-old safe, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what about the personal freedoms of uh, Natalie and Jose to wear masks, you know? it's Yeah, that's uh, just so fucking gross. So gross. So. We uh, see you. We see you. We see you. That's the yuckiest shit (laughs) um okay this is more minor but you know my uh the emmys the emmys were uh this sunday this past sunday and um there were of course some cringy moments but a couple of specifically cringy ones came from the executive producer uh and the director of queen's gambit which was a great show i very much enjoyed lots of good things about it but and and the show had a lot of goodwill towards it but these guys man man they blew it um so scott frank who was uh he won a director's award for queen's gambit um and he was supposed to give a 45 second speech and he was played off by the orchestra they tried to play him off three times and he just talked through it and basically was like no (laughs) um and it's just like peak white male energy and just a really bad look all around and um lots of good jokes were made about why the well now we know why the queen's gambit was too long (laughs) but it's just like sir to think that you just get off the fucking stage anyone who is gonna try to talk through the orchestra i don't know why it happens at every major awards show every single year it's like we know it's a bad look why are you doing it why are you making everyone cringe out of like out of our skin but um okay so that was scott frank but um the second one was um executive producer william horberg who accepted the award for Outstanding Drama Series um, on behalf of the cast and crew of Queen's Gambit. And he, he like, was obviously trying to do, like, a Yas Queen and just, like, obvious, and, like, fell on his fucking face because it's not, he doesn't know how to do it. And he just, don't even go there. Just do a thank you speech. Because he said in his speech, what can I say? And he gestured at Anya Taylor-Joy, who was the star of Queen's Gambit. You brought the sexy back to chess, and you inspired a whole generation of girls and young women to realize that patriarchy has no defense against our queens. 
Oh my god. Um it was uh bad. But um someone on Twitter had a great response that was like, "Oh great, William Horberg basically said like <laughs> let's go smash the patriarchy, you like you nerdy little slut." <laughs> Like, yeah, that's kind of, like, what he was – it was, like, very creepy, very, like, just stay in your lane, you know, old white executive producer dude. Just don't – you don't have to do that. Um, And then just broadly sort of a, a, you know, boo-hoo, like, a a real – a real thumbs down to no actors of color winning um, any of the – major acting awards um despite a pretty great lineup of people um you know michael k the late michael k williams potentially for lovecraft country um billy porter and mj mj rodriguez for pose bowen yang um or keenan thompson for snl um michaela cole uh for i may destroy you although she lost to kate winslet um in mayor of east town which was like Cool, but ah, Michaela Cole. At least she won. I'll wrap this one up with a good thing, which is that at least Michaela Cole won um, for writing um, for "I May Destroy You," and she had a great speech that um, was really beautiful in the way that she just basically said, um, "Don't be afraid to like, as a creator, you don't always have to be online and visible. Like, you can go." and see what happens and what, what inspiration strikes when you're in like in the silence, um, which was kind of, yeah, that was a nice sentiment that I'm sure people who feel like they have to be permanently online um, and creating and being loud. I'm sure that that was a sentiment that was went over very, very well for people. So anyway, so we see you and then, the Michaela Cole good thing. So it's a one-two punch. Complicated. All over, it's in keeping with my theme this um, this evening, which is like all over the place. <laughs> complicated. It's complicated. Um, so Lauren Pefferly um, made a choice. She is a, um, a staff member, a, I think a special education um, classroom assistant at an elementary school in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. She decided to protest the school district's vaccine mandate for employees. Mm. And how did she decide to do this? Um, she dressed up, she says, as Rosa Parks. Mm. Um, to do so, she did blackface. Um, so she was there basically being like by refusing to get a vaccine I am Rosa Parks and I'm also wearing blackface Um, so really just missed the mark in a number of ways Um, she was suspended Uh, she has not she wasn't you know terminated she was suspended which I mean, her judgment is is so bad. Um, the I mean, it's just it's so many. There are just layers to this one. I mean, one protesting the vaccine mandate. That's your right, I guess. It's I mean, it's foolishness, but that's your foolishness. That's your right. Um, comparing yourself to Rosa Parks, bold move. 
yeah. wrong move. Um, Rosa Parks was, you know, fighting against inequality. And you're basically fighting against public safety and health. And then to just top it all off by putting blackface on. Um, really just missed the mark on all accounts here. Mm-hmm. Um, do we, we still need to say in 2021 that blackface is never okay. It's wildly racist. It is harmful and toxic. And there's never a reason to do it. Um, and you are not Rosa Parks because you're protesting the vaccine mandate. That's not, it's not the same thing. Different things. Um, yeah, these people, they, they love to compare themselves to like Jesus and Rosa Parks and all these people. It's like, you're just, you're actually just kind of a whiny little asshole. Um, you're not fighting for some grand cause you are a toddler um but not cute and you're not gonna learn Mm -hmm. so anywho we see you to lauren pefferly for all of it yeah (laughs) for the whole for all those decisions that went into that day for her um and i'm a little i mean i don't know if there's a contractual red tape or something but the fact she was just suspended it, it feels like wearing blackface to school should maybe be a, a terminating um, issue, you know? Yeah. Think, I think so. I think, I think so. So, so um, good Lord, we, we see you. We really do. We really, when you told me that you were telling me before we recorded and it was like each sentence was just like, oh, oh, ah. <laughs> yeah, just levels. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, my week next we see you is um, out of an article from uh, the Guardian recently talking about um, Benton Harbor and their uphill batty- battle to get uh, states to get the state to take their um, water quality issue seriously. Um, it was discovered in 2018 that um, tap water in Benton County uh, had lead levels of 22 parts per billion, which is well over the fe- federal lead action level of 15 parts per billion and higher than um, this was higher than even Flint, Michigan, where they were averaging 20 parts per billion. Um, so this is something kind of getting to the heart of uh, what we've talked about, structural inequities, environmental in, uh, injustice here. Um, but Benton Harbor, Michigan um, is close to other, it's a predominantly black uh, black town and it is has, there are a lot of other neighboring white towns that do not have this issue. Um, and it just doesn't seem to be taken, being taken seriously. Um, at least there has been, um, earlier this month, Gretchen Whitmer, who's a Democrat proposed 20 million to replace the city's century old lead pipes, um, and provide water filters to families to make infrastructure improvements. Um, but, uh, 
this seems like a really urgent uh urgent issue um this is not only a predominantly black um ca- uh county in Benton Harbor um but like 45% of residents live below the poverty line um they the guardian compares um near the nearby uh town of St. Joseph um which doesn't have a water quality issue only seven the poverty rate's about 7% and uh the uh population is about 85% white um and this uh area St. Joseph's is um considered quote the Riviera of the Midwest <laughs> um but it's just sort of one of those situations too where you, I mean it's obviously again like where are the resources uh the health risks to people who are drinking lead especially children um children who drink lead tend to have lower IQs high rates of attention deficit disorder poor memory and a lack of impulse control and then as they become adults they're at higher risk for kidney disease stroke and hypertension and some studies have also connected lead exposure to incarceration for violence so that's um this is all kind of coming from this guardian article but i just think you know flint michigan made national headlines for their 20 parts per billion um, of lead in the water and that was totally unacceptable and i think they are still having issues even years later but um so i didn't want this story of benton harbor to get lost um again it just is like important to call out these inequities when we see them especially when you can look directly across town to a neighboring a neighboring town that's predominantly white with a lower um much lower uh, poverty percentage of people under the poverty line and um they're not dealing with those issues you just um again sort of an obvious some obvious conclusions can be drawn immediately so to michigan who still has massive water issues we see you we see you. Um, and the last we see you um, is one that we both wanted to address because um, of the, well, we'll just talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so you may have seen the images that came out of U.S. Border Control agents on horseback chasing Haitian migrants um, along the Rio Grande they were um, the migrants were going to return to a camp that they had set up near you might have seen the pictures of the international bridge in del rio texas um but when they were trying to cross the river agents on their horses were trying to turn them back and if you look at the pictures it's it looks violent it looks like they are using um either whips or using the horse's reins um in a very uh, malicious manner um it looked like one of them almost ran over a child and was not making any efforts not to um it's it look yeah look these images are vile um the photographer who took them said that he thought that or he or she thought that the um Haitians were scared and panicking um 
and you can see the um one of the agents nearly off the saddle trying to grab a man by the shirt i mean these these images this this happening in again in 2021 as if we expect mm-hmm. i don't know any sort of human decency in this country that was supposed to be this melting pot um these people that have gone on these the journeys that some of these um, Haitian migrants have have gone on to to get there and the just lack complete lack of humanity with which they're they're given and treated um by these agents is so fucking disgusting well said (laughs) um it's it's fucking it's fucking disgusting it's uh, you said this earlier before we started recording, but it has a it has a very antebellum vibe to it. Um, I think you can draw some pretty clear conclusions from these photos. It seems like the border patrol agents are imbued with some sort of uh, authority that they seem to feel very deeply. <laughs> um, like they're not. This is not the whip is not or the reins of the horse is not a. <laughs> It didn't accidentally end up in that uh, in that position. This is this was like mm-hmm. this is malicious. This was intention is intentional. Um, there were reports that uh, you know one of the border agents said to uh, a Haitian migrant who was huddling with women and children. Um, he said like this is why your country's shit because you use your women for this um, and tried to impede the man's path. Um, the pictures of these migrants crossing the del rio river um from mexico to texas you know it's also heartbreaking because there's some pictures they're just like they're 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 wearing a mask as they're wearing masks as they like cross this river desperately trying to get to asylum which by the way is is legal in this country it is legal to seek asylum the um the people of haiti are facing a whole lot of um upheaval between the the murder of their their president earlier this year to a second disruptive earthquake i mean there was a huge one in 2010 killing thousands and thousands of people and then there was one like last month um there's just like there's these are people who are trying to seek asylum and um we have to be better than this i don't care if it's trump or biden i i mean what the fuck is going on at border border patrol here? Like th- these people get rid of them, get rid of them. I mean, disband CPB, disband ICE, make something new, rehire. I, I mean, I don't know what to say. These are desperate people. And this is another just stunning, uh, failure to live up to the ideals of this country um you know we we can do so much better this is horrific and um frankly also disappointing that the administration is just kind of you know they've jen Psaki said it was horrific and it was disturbing and they're 
Department of Homeland Security said they would look into it and conduct a swift investigation. But like, I I need we all at this point need more from from Border Patrol to feel like there's anything going on there that's that's ethical. Um, I just feel like it's it's a bunch of like absolute, absolutely morally bankrupt assholes um, who who take pleasure in this, who take pleasure in this. Um, that's gotta stop. So yeah, that's we see you to that those fucking people. <laughs> Absolutely. And hopefully we can get um this administration can uh figure some shit out when it comes to the border because this has been a bit of a hot fucking mess. Yeah. Oh, and one other just note that I'm trying to remember too, um, is that sharing these images is just generally probably not a good idea because it's just very disturbing um and triggering for people and if you do share post a trigger warning um i i sometimes have to have have struggled with that because i i want to share because i feel like it's you know i want more people to see these this these images so that the discomfort will make you will kind of will show you the urgency of the humanitarian crisis i think that 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 there's a validity to that to wanting people to sort of wake up and see what's really happening um, but I think there's just so much of these horrendous images, imagery going around that if you really do want to find it, you can find it, but that there's a way to talk about these, um, really disturbing events without sharing them, which is something I'm trying to kind of remember myself, um, which is just like, yeah, to maybe think before you hit retweet. Good, um, good thing to flag. Definitely. Um, and you had a good thing i do okay okay cubes uh okay cupid or uh you know the cubes as i think we called it junior year at nyu when yep. we started dating people there we did a lot the, the the ratio of good to bad dates from there is, is not great better than some of the apps um but i did yeah find, i did meet my husband on okay cupid so yeah not, not all I bad, met my but... uh my yeah. boyfriend on OK Cubes. Yeah. The two. It can work. <laughs> it can work. It can. Um, and fuck hinged. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. Plenty of fish is a fucking joke. Plenty of fish is. Oh, plenty of fish was bad. Oh, God. Yeah. Like one date from there, maybe. Like sophomore year of college and never again. Anyway. I know. I and I took us both. I, t- I dragged you on a double date that you would never forgive me for. <laughs> I've, I've moved on, but it, I certainly was not aroused. Um, Neither was anyway. I, but that was a bummer. Okay. Well, this is a good a, thing. This is- a body's a body sometimes, I guess. <laughs> not even with those guys. All right. Um, so, OkCupid um, has um come out a little bit more vocally than a lot of other companies in support of a woman's right to choose. Yay, you did it. <laughs> um but they basically have added uh a badge that's right at the very top of your profile um where you can identify as um pro choice and say that you um you know support a woman's right to choose. And so um you can basically you'll get the badge and um 
they said that actually uh, every every user in the U.S. who answers yes to the question, do you want to add a pro-choice badge to your profile, demonstrating your support of reproductive rights, will get the badge. And for everyone who does, OkCupid's okay, donating a dollar to Planned Parenthood up to 50000 So, hey, better than nothing. And also, I think it's important because it's also not going to it's going to be good because you know not to waste your time easier with a whole lot of people. I mean, the questions are important. For instance, is the earth bigger than the sun was a key one to weigh, to weigh heavily. Uh, like, Or is shaved legs mandatory? Like, Lots of things are important ones. But now you don't actually have to even go to the question section or figure out what the, you know, which percentage is. Um, so anyway, feeling real good. Um, that OkCupid's okay, kind of taken this stance. And I, I think like more and more, let's just po- push that it's socially unacceptable to be someone who doesn't support a woman's right to choose, especially if you're trying to date anyone. So, um, cause it affects you too, man. Like you got someone pregnant. I, I don't understand why you think it doesn't affect, it fully affects you. You fucks. I can only assume the cis men who, um, who dates as women who don't have that badge are celibate and waiting until they want to impregnate somebody. Um, totally. That's my assumption. I'm sure none of them are <laughs> looking to fuck. None of them. None. None. So hooray for OK Cubes. You do Yay. that. Making <laughs> online dating a little less bad yeah not sponsored (laughs) not sponsored but hey you know dating is a garbage fire and (laughs) logging on to okcupid is never something that i've ever enjoyed but i feel like i do i do think that putting myself in the space of like which dating site am i going to go to if there if there's a space that's actively promoting and actively supporting a woman's right to choose it's just like immediately a little bit easier a little sexier i'm a little bit happier so cool great great <laughs> well um speaking of sexy uh, feminist without mystique is a part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.com slash podcast bye right. keep it sexy <laughs>